0: Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, recession-proofing commitments to DEIB. Tanya, Angie, and Mary Ellen speak with Sean Miles and Patricia Rodriguez of Ancura Consulting Group. Patricia and Sean work on Ancora's social impact practice, which Sean leads. They talked to Building Belonging about leading businesses to embrace cultural, systemic approaches to DEIB progress.
1: This work on DEIB is really about changing the hearts and minds and how systems operate as well. And so, yes, you need a foundation of policies and some regulations and laws to operate from, and there are many, and perhaps some of them should be refined. But this is really about lifting up the hood and organizations looking at ways that sometimes inadvertently, their systems and processes are causing harm and being open to doing that and doing the necessary work to alleviate that.
0: They have some real talk about carrying on the work even in the face of
1: forces that oppose DEIB. When you see progress happen in the fight, you will see the forces who are against those things, who don't want those things to happen, start to galvanize and and they're formidable, well-funded and well-organized at times. And so while it is alarming, it is part of the journey for equality is that you will face these headwinds and these challenges. And so you must be vigilant, you must be steadfast in your resolve and committed to the cause, DEI, notwithstanding the fact
0: that those who are against it. Patricia and Sean also get serious about the alignment of business and DEIB interests.
2: That's profit loss, having to redo things over and over. So being a bit more open, I think, will naturally help the bottom line, and that's what companies want.
0: Be sure to stay tuned after the conversation for a second installment of DEIB for the People, where the Building Belonging crew share some of their favorite DEIB content for your screens. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya martinez Galanucci.
3: Welcome back to Building Belonging. We are so excited because we're going to be talking with some of our friends from Ankara who are going to discuss with us the landscape of DEI and how we're experiencing it, what's going on, and what we're seeing out in the world. I have to say that this couldn't be a better time to have this conversation with you all. I feel like DEI is under attack on every front and it's always on the news. And so with that, we're gonna get started. I am Tanya martinez Galanucci. I am the executive director of ODeep, and I'm passing the mic to my crew. Hello, hello, I am Angie
4: Avila-Lanciati. I am the development and communications manager with the office
5: and I'm gonna to toss it over to my colleague and friend. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa. I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for Odeep. And for our guests today, if you could just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what belonging means to you.
1: Sure. Thank you. So my name is Sean Miles. I'm a Senior Managing Director at Anchorer Consulting, and I lead our social impact practice. And what that practice is about is helping clients develop and implement their societal promise. And we really focus on how our clients can better serve their employees, particularly those employees who are underrepresented, are having some challenges with respect to inclusion and diversity. And we also help our clients serve their communities better, whether that be through philanthropic efforts, volunteer efforts, and efforts around social impact and social justice. And so that is kind of the focus area of our practice. At the heart of that, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what it really means for me, and I think our clients where we are today, is really creating opportunities for those who have had challenges having opportunities to grow and succeed and feel accepted and feel like they belong, and really working on strategies to address that, but also do so in a way that contributes to business success. And we view it as not only the right thing to do, but a great business thing to do. We look at it from both a business as well as a people perspective and the intersection between the two. And so that is how I view it and how we operate. And, you know, look forward to exploring some of the challenges and opportunities that we currently face in this space.
2: Hi, guys. I'm Patricia. Diaz Rodriguez. I am a senior director at Ankura. I guess I would say I am the Robin to Sean's Batman. I work at, on the social impact team as well. I think the question, although it sounds really simple, what does belonging mean? It means so many different things to so many different people. And honestly, I think the definition could change in, the, in a certain context, right? I guess for me, if I had to define it in a nutshell, is feeling accepted. In the space, in any space, right? Not just that you have a seat at the table, but you're accepted at the table. And again, that can mean in any, pretty much any area. So I'm happy to be here as well and dive into this very juicy topic.
4: Thank you both so much. And Patricia, I agree with you. Belonging is a chameleon of a word, it changes its colors depending on who you're speaking to. So, I mean, great. Great response, Sean. You gave us a really amazing elevator pitch, but I want to know what does Ankor do, and how do you do it?
1: So we're a managing consulting firm with about two thousand expert advisors across the globe, and we work with clients in various different industries um, at public and private sector um, on various different strategies. And so, you know, Patricia and I work on the social impact team, but we have teams at Ancora that work on cybersecurity construction, litigation, human resources, and the list goes on and on, really to help organizations deal with how you become more successful and how you problem solve some of these issues that organizations face today. And then on the topic of belonging, it is one where, as Patricia said, you really want to focus on how do people feel accepted and welcome and kind of show up as who they are and what does that mean in today's environment and particularly in corporate and professional spaces? I saw an analogy that I thought was very interesting in terms of how to look at this, which is diversity is inviting somebody to the party, right? And inclusion is actually, you know, someone invite asking you to dance. Whereas belonging would be that you feel so comfortable at that party that you feel comfortable asking someone else to dance and be, really getting comfortable being who you are in that space. And I think we all kind of strive for that in the environments in which we operate. And that's one of the challenges that I think many organizations are trying to figure out, particularly larger organizations who are more complex. But it is one that I think is now more open to being addressed than it ever has been before.
2: Clients come to us with very different needs all the time. And it does fall under this umbrella of social impact or DEI or some sort of crisis management that something has happened at a company and they need some help. But I I do think you just need to be incredibly open to to letting people be honest. I had a very, I would say an authentically awkward conversation with somebody recently where they just didn't know how to speak about people. And I could actually tell they were uncomfortable asking me like, hey, I know I shouldn't be saying this, but what's the new way to say it, right? Because when I was your age, this was acceptable and now it's not. And things are changing so fast. And how do you approach people and say, hey, like I know I can't say I, I can't I even this is the worst example, right? But like and even now, I cringe with the example, but you can't say oriental. That's not a thing anymore. But there are some there are people who are like, well, that's how I when I was younger, that was fine. That's not fine anymore. And having that uncomfortable conversation, saying, Hey, like not only can you not say that you should know better. Right. So we Sean and I and our team, we try our best to let people be honest, even in the uncomfortable, right? Because they're never going to grow and they're not going to learn on what's socially acceptable now and likely what will be in the future, right? I'm sure things that we say now in five years, it's we're not able to say that. And so being able to be flexible and evolve with that space, I think is incredibly important, not just for us, but our clients as well.
3: Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think that there's a lot of people who are listening to this who will hear that and that'll resonate. They'll be able to connect with that idea that, man, there were things I used to say and do, or there's things that were presented a certain way on TV that if we did today, we'd be canceled. That's part of what drives some of the fears we're seeing broadcasted <laughs> in our legislation, on the news. And I love, I absolutely love the fact that when Sean gave his intro about what you do, You said we're industry agnostic. We can work with all types of industries and orgs because these are issues that exist everywhere. These are issues that stem from our society, from history, right? The inequities that we see in workplaces, the issues, the conflicts we see in our society are reflected in every place we can think of. And so it makes perfect sense to me that this is something that you can and should be doing everywhere. One of the things that we talk about on our podcast and in our theory of change in general about these issues is people need to find comfort in getting it wrong. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. (laughs) And that's okay. Like, we have to get it wrong. It's how you learn, right? And as much as you can take the sting out of getting something wrong, the better you'll be at it. Like, learn to apologize, learn to acknowledge, learn to be able to take some space, right? One of the things that we advise people is if you do get called out for something, like using the wrong term, thank the person for trusting you to give you this information and say you need some time to process it. Right, and say thank you for letting me know. I want to process this. I'll get back to you with a more thoughtful apology or thoughtful insights. So, thank you for bringing us there and leading the conversation naturally into my next question, which is: I mean, I have views on this, but I was wondering what you all, since you are on the ground in so many different places, how are you seeing these quote unquote anti woke movements impacting DEIB in these space in these places? Because I will tell you. We are noticing it on our front. We are seeing how the co-opting of woke, which breaks my heart, because I will stay woke always, but how they're co-opting this anti-woke movement. How are you guys seeing this and what you're doing?
1: Well, Tanya, I think your two points. One, in terms of the ability to say the wrong thing and, and that not be subject to the death penalty, is very important. And I think sometimes we lose sight of our own realities. And the way I approach this is from one of not operating in a state of being where I'm not going to be quick to take offense, with a sense of grace and humility, but also with a sense of realness. In my journey, have I said some things I shouldn't have said about some people along the way? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Have I done some things that I shouldn't have done in my life? The answer is yes. Do I have family members and friends who have said things they shouldn't have said and done things they shouldn't have done? Yes. So if I can want grace and humility to apply to myself and to my family and friends, then why wouldn't that I extend to my coworkers and colleagues? And so, uh, and I think that's the place to start. And I think Tanya, the, the way you expressed in terms of how to deal with some of the challenges that perhaps when someone says something that is you know, offensive or can be offensive, we need to have some grace and, and patience in those situations because we're all guilty of that at some point in our life and we'll continue to be. In terms of the anti-woke movement and the policies and the like that are being advanced, Patricia and I, we, we pay close attention to these developments every day. Obviously they're very serious and they are having some impact and causing some headwinds along with the current economic environment. But the way I look at it is this is a result of the fact that we are starting to see real progress in a DEI. And in the wake of the murder of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, we started to see organizations take this more seriously, understand it in a more impactful way, and real progress started to happen. And so when you see progress happen in the fight, you will see the forces who are against those things, who don't want those things to happen start to galvanize and, and they're formidable, well-funded and well-organized at times. And so while it is alarming, it is part of the journey for equality is that you will face these headwinds and these challenges. And so you must be vigilant, you must be steadfast in your resolve and committed to the cause, DEI, notwithstanding the fact that there are those who are against it. And when we see those who are against it, we focus even more in terms of progression and dealing with some of the nuances of the debate. And so when I think about how we approach it with working with organizations, we're helping organizations be successful. And so when organizations are actually being successful, why would they want to stop doing things that make them successful? And we see DEI as something that helps organizations be successful. And so no organization wants to be unsuccessful, right? Um, But when it comes to these policies, when it comes to these initiatives, we have to be prepared with the arguments that work against them. We have to be prepared for fighting for what really is important. And we can't let perfection be the enemy of the good. And so you advance what you can while you can, and you keep going on with the fight and the journey. And so for those of us who believe in DEI and are passionate about it, uh, it should strengthen our resolve to, to come together and redouble our efforts in this fight.
2: And so I think Sean hit a point that I touched on before, but he hammered it home a bit better than I did, is your response to other people's responses or reactions really are super important. So when somebody approaches you with a learning opportunity and you're instantly defensive, it goes off the rails, right? What could have been something where I could say, hey, listen, like, this is just not what we do or we can't, whatever, like a learning opportunity and somebody really gets really defensive and they're nasty. Then you have to shut the whole thing down because, you know, it goes sideways. Um, that's where unfortunately a lot of things happen where people just are resistant to growing in regards to the, the anti woke movement. We've seen a lot of that. I think since 2021, 44 states have introduced some sort of bill or legislation to either stop critical race theory, which essentially is anti-wokeness in school settings, or obviously everybody knows about the Florida bill, literally you can't say the word woke, which is, that's a whole nother podcast conversation, I'm sure. But, you know, I think Sean and I, and not just us, right? Many companies that take this incredibly seriously have come up with alternative ways in which we can continue the fight. There's loopholes in everything. That's the beauty of the law. And folks that really want to advance DEI and help their employees feel a sense of belonging will continue on. And We just won't use a certain verbiage that maybe some of these bills are proposing or legislation that that's being introduced. Again, it's I've looked at it a million times, right? There's like six or seven like chunks of verbiage you can't say. Well, I mean you can't you can't regulate everything and so there's always ways around things. But it does create challenges and it's unfortunate to see. But to Sean's point too, if it wasn't working, we wouldn't have pushback. If nobody cared, then nobody would care. So it's a gift and a curse. You just hope that there's People who have enough resolve to keep pushing forward when the change is very incremental and slow, that they're going to say, okay, well, two percent change is better than no percent change, or it's just like this isn't working and forget it. I do think it's an uphill battle, but we're we'll definitely making some inroads.
3: No, that's really helpful, and you're absolutely right. The number of legislation <laughs> thinking about the word woke is shocking. Like, imagine if we had that much legislation out there for gun control for instance, like things that are actually causing harm to our children. And I'm sure you guys saw the now infamous interview of the woman who was trying to define woke on TV, on air, and couldn't for the life of her get a single word out about what it means. (laughs) And again, it is just, especially in our industry, where we're lawyers, we're trained to be critical thinkers. We're trained to be issue spotters. And I feel like because of the climate and the way these words are used, we find really intelligent, critical thinkers saying really silly things. And I say that because even us at our office, we are the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Belonging at the New York City Bar. We have received hate mail from Mm. lawyers and judges claiming that we have a woke agenda and that is somehow a bad thing. That's a pejorative. Them telling us that we're woke is a pejorative. I'm like, you are definitely complimenting me. You have no idea what you're doing, (laughs) but I really appreciate that. And I think I'm going to hand it over to my
2: colleague who has another question for you all. Wait, before you go to the next question, I just wanted to just make one comment. So in preparation for this podcast, I looked up the word woke, right? I was trying to figure out some sort of talking points. And I saw that in 1944, really the first real, I guess, like on paper woke definition came about. And I think the fact that I, I did like a very quick Google search to see where the origins of, of the word came from. And it was the idea of a black man and realized he was getting paid less than his white counterparts. And he said to his, to a, another group of employees, we can't sleep on this. We need to stay woke. So that sentence alone, and really that's kind of how it's being used still, right? Like the idea of like, don't sleep, right? Like I, I know what's going on. I got to be awake really is how it's, how the slang is using it. But the fact that woman was unable to come up with anything when I was able to come up with all of that in about a six minute Google search, that just shows how you, you just don't care. You're not doing any sort of actual diligence in trying to move anything forward. You're likely just going to create scandal and opposition, like media drama, and that's a whole different thing, right? And so sometimes people will keep these things in the news just to keep themselves relevant. And it's infuriating to see because it, I guess, and to Sean's original point, you also, it stays in the news, it's still newsworthy. And so we'll get in where we fit in, but you know, to see how that's working is unfortunate as well.
3: I appreciate that so much, Patricia, because you're absolutely right. And that's the way I've always used woke when it like resurfaced in the early 2000s in my world. I'm sure it resurfaced many other times, but for me, when I became aware of the term woke, it was always about being aware of systemic inequity that affects folks differently based on your race, social class, name other statuses, whatever they may be. But that's always what woke was. And so if you're anti bringing those things to light and addressing those things, you're on the wrong side of history. Like, I just don't know how else to say it. So I really do. If you're listening to this podcast and the term woke has kept you up at night or given you shivers or caused you some fear, I say fear not. Please do a Google search. You'll find out more. And I hope you you join us on the right side of history.
5: So shifting gears a little bit, we've been touching on kind of the legislation and the regulation Around DEIB and its opposition, but I would like to get your viewpoint on what is your view about regulation within the DEIB space.
1: I don't know that there's a need for regulation to force it, nor is there a need for regulation to prevent it. Regulation should be used to encourage and support these issues. And I think we can always examine where the policies are and where they could be refined and better refined. The latest movement, obviously, as we're talking about the anti-woke, is to prevent DEI, and that's that's horrible. But I do think regulation should be used in a way that can be effective. But we also have to understand that regulation in and of itself and laws and policies are usually a first step and an important step, but not the final step. I think about the well-settled law, Brown versus Board of Education, that separate is not equal in our school system, which has been settled law for some time, but yet And still, we have segregated schools uh, in our country, notwithstanding the fact that the law says otherwise. And so this work on DEIB is really about changing the hearts and minds and how systems operate as well. And so, yes, you need a foundation of policies and some regulations and laws to operate from. And there are many and perhaps some of them should be refined. But this is really about lifting up the hood and organizations looking at ways that sometimes inadvertently their systems and processes are causing harm and being open to doing that and doing the necessary work to alleviate that. And so that's kind of where we focus our efforts. And obviously, if there are some challenges that present themselves where there's a need for greater regulation or the like, whether at the federal, state or local level, then we look at that. But we think we have enough of a framework to operate within current policies generally that we can advance the cause of DEI. But, you know, this is a fluid situation, right? And so if some of these anti-woke policies really do gain traction and become significant hurdles, then there may need to be a need for perhaps federal regulation or some other regulations to sort of level the playing field so that we don't have these inequities in place.
2: I was looking at a couple articles not too long ago and a few schools in the Midwest. One in particular was teaching critical race theory, right? To so Sean's point, I think a lot of this stuff starts at home, right? When you're young, you emulate your parents. There's just some of these things are just morals, right? Like your moral compass. And typically you get that from home, uh, even just hearing other people speak. And these schools, I guess, were teaching things that apparently were in opposition of a new proposed bill and their school was essentially their accreditation was stripped from them, which seems crazy. And so I think a lot of you guys know, and I'm pretty vocal, I have a set of twins, one of which has a medical condition. And I went into her school, she's in first grade, last week and read a book about belonging. And it was a medical book about belonging and differences and the me you can't see. And it was meant to talk about children who have maybe ADD or autism, anything, really anything that you can't see. And maybe that's why they're a bit different. And I'm reading this book with my husband. And I realized that this book technically wouldn't be allowed, right? In a number, 44 states, technically. And it didn't say anything. It didn't call out anybody's skin color or race or sexual orientation, anything. It just talked about feeling like they, people should be able to be different and they should be able to belong. I think what I've learned in this journey with Sean and we talk about regulations is that this is all so specific to how you feel, right? And it's such a slippery slope. So that school that was, that their accreditation was stripped from them, that teacher was like, hey, I didn't realize this is what you meant. And they're like, well, that is what we meant. I I mean, like, prove it. So the thing is, it's all so subjective. And at what point, there has to be a point where we do have to create some sort of regulations, because it can't just be based on your gut feeling, or what, you know, how you grew up or what you think, like, I don't care what you think, I need to know how this really works, right? I need to know what I can actually teach, where things are going to be able to move and what's going to jam me up professionally, whether it's a corporation or that's a school or that's a state or in the courts or anywhere. So I definitely think this will come to a head because it's snowballing very quickly as, as some other states are gaining traction in this anti-woke space and other states are quickly jumping on board.
3: And just to piggyback, I mean, just to add on to what you all are saying, I think there's also so much danger in the way we're seeing these bans and limitations and these regulations attack. Like history, like what they did to that African-American AP history course in Florida. I mean, people say whitewash. That is very generous. (laughs)
2: Like,
3: I mean, they just it's not even it's not even history. They can't teach James Baldwin, Bell Hooks. The folks who educated me, let's be real, like these are the texts, these are the formative texts that inform us as practitioners, many of us as practitioners who gave us voices and insight, who made us feel seen in these spaces. I remember when I was in AP history, I'm a New York City public school kid. I was a straight A student my whole life. I was always so gung-ho to learn everything because I just assumed that learning everything was going to... Best prepare me for whatever that fight ahead was, because I, I, in my mind I knew life was going to be a fight. It had been a fight. It was always a fight. It will be a fight forever. And I was so excited about AP US History. I know it sounds like such a dork, but I was. I am a dork. I was so excited about AP US History because I wanted to better understand me. I wanted to know how my family came to be in the U.S. and what our story meant in the fabric of the country. How naive. How silly. When we got to the end of the course, and there were still like two or three months left in the school year because we have to take the AP exam, I remember my teacher had this concluding thing. And I was like, wait this can't be the end. What do you mean this is the end of the course? He was like, this is it, Tanya. Like, this is what we're... And I was like, but what about me? What about the big migrations? Like, what about immigration? What about the Latinx community? What about the Dominicans who came here because of the dictatorship that was put in place by the US government? Like, are you telling me we're not going to talk about any of that? And he was like, In college, you can take those courses. And it's just, and that's just on a regular level, right? Like our regular curriculum that leaves out so many of our stories and histories, which is why for those who don't follow the Zen Education Project and support them, please do, because their history, the history that they're telling is actually history. But to your point, Patricia, like there's so much unsaid in what we're banning that scares me because i don't see people kind of coming up in arms at the banning of our history the way i would have expected the way i would have hoped like i thought that the people were going to turn over cars <laughs> when this was banned i was like why are we letting this be this happen i mean this is not this is not any different from fascism this is exactly what the nazis did exactly what the nazis did. So, you know, I really appreciate your insights and thank you for going to your child's school and reading these stories
2: and being such a shiro. That's amazing. I think these are weird side effects, right? It's all like a ripple effect. I recently had new headshots done, right? Super like like a super dope woman, older, really eclectic, she's awesome. And we're talking about pictures, like cuz she's a photographer. She takes corporate I love corporate headshots. And I was telling her about Women's History Month and Black History Month. And she's like, I had made this like a collage of very powerful looking Black headshots that I had taken throughout my career. And I was going to post it. And then I didn't because I didn't want it to look like I was pretty much like taking advantage of these, you know, whatever. And I'm like, it's crazy that what used to be allyship, right? Where she thought she, and in fairness, I think that's what she was doing. Like that was from what I can tell what her heart was to say, look at these beautiful black faces and empower Black History Month. She was trying to empower. And she's like, well, I don't want to be seen as though I'm riding on the Black History Month as this white woman. And so she didn't do anything. And so I've noticed a lot of people now, I'm the president of Hispanic Bar for the state of New York. And oftentimes I have people will say to me, oh, well, can you guys come in for Hispanic History Month? And don't get me wrong, I can, we could do this all day, right? But I'm Hispanic 12 months out of the year, right? So I don't need to just come in for that one month. And so to her point, I said, I felt terrible because she's afraid that she's going to be canceled because she's this white woman or that people are going to say, hey, you're just using these black faces during Black History Month, but what about all the other months? And even there is a lesson in de and how and how you can be an ally without feeling like you're going to be jammed up for it. Because I would rather her 10 times out of 10, maybe post these pictures and cross her fingers that she doesn't kind of mess it up than to not say anything at all right because i think that's quieting a different kind of voice that we're not hoping for it's having this like reverse effect on people that would want to come out you see like in anti-woke movements and other people are like well you can't feel this way because you're not you're not me or you don't have this struggle but it's like i could still be an ally and how does that work out how do you maneuver that space it's a very interesting topic i think for sure
3: and thank you for mentioning you're the president of the Hispanic National, but I wasn't going to say it because I was like, okay, I guess she doesn't want to talk about it. But yeah, I, I mean... I swear, I forgot when we started. I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, has like That's this baller cool. and she's not even saying this very big thing. Okay, great. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I thank you for sharing these anecdotes. You don't have to apologize for sharing these anecdotes. Like, I honestly, if you haven't heard our podcast, we were very much about storytelling. <laughs> There's resistance and... Awareness building and storytelling. And I love this story because I do think that it was a missed opportunity, to your point. It was a missed opportunity. And I get not just like posting it a lo loco by yourself without like checking in with folks, but I feel like had she wanted to really do something with this, she could have asked. Ask those folks, hey, I took a really beautiful shot of you and I want to honor your beauty and I want to do something with it. Would you be okay with that? Is there anything I could do for you with this photo? Do you want to use it? Do you have anything you want to say? Be an ally. You could be an ally. And I do think you're right. I think folks are so scared of being canceled that they do nothing. And one of the things we always say in this work is there's no fence sitters. You're either helping the cause or you're not. Being neutral does not move the needle. In fact, it's one less person we have in the fight. So please do it scared. We do things scared all the time as people of color, as marginalized groups. I haven't been safe in years, ever. (laughs) I do everything scared. Yes. (laughs) I appreciate that story.
4: What I'm taking away and what I love to see is that Ancora provides an opportunity where you take the heavy lifting of teaching others about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable off of people of color or marginalized groups. Because how many times has a white colleague looked over to their person of color colleague or person of color peer and said like, oh, is this offensive to you? And now not only are you offended, but you also have to teach. And it's, I'm not here to be your teacher. I'm here to be your colleague this is working hours. So what I just want to throw that out there that you're also creating space where people of color, or people in the LGBTQ community or people who are neurodivergent, they don't have to also be teachers, which is I don't think we pointed that out. So I just want to highlight that. But with that overwinded observation, my question to you is why is Deeb good for business?
1: Well, it's good for business. And so what we're seeing, a lot of the data and the studies across the board are showing those organizations who do this well, are more mature on their journey and really intentional and focused, are outperforming their competitors. Their financial performance is better than competitors in their industry. And particularly if they're publicly traded, we're seeing they're also making better decisions. And so like they are countless studies of data that shows the percentage increase that these companies are having over their competitors in so many different categories and there are those who are against it that say well there is no correlation or causation there but for those companies who are successful and outdoing their competitors they don't want to go backwards right they want to move forward and this is making them successful and why it does and it's probably maybe common sense to us is that you have organizations whose culture are treating employees, regardless of their background, as valued employees with respect, with appreciation of who they are and what they bring to the table, and wanting that, wanting people to show up as themselves, and wanting them to contribute and posit ideas that perhaps aren't the conventional corporate ideas, and seeing success in that way, but also recognizing that We now serve a very global, diverse marketplace in ways that we never did before. And so all of that is kind of coming together. And so that's why it's been great for business is because you are providing a product or service with people who reflect various walks of life. And you're providing that product and service likely to people of various walks of life as well. Uh, And once you create that expectation and that excitement and that energy around it, people don't want that to go away and they want to do business with you. They want to work for you. And so that's what we're seeing. It becomes infectious. And then if your competitors are doing it and you're not doing it, then you're not as competitive. And we know the name of the game of business is to be competitive and be successful from a profit perspective. And so that's why we're seeing the great success there. But that's also why we see the opposition. Right. Because. Uh, there are those who want us to stay asleep and not be awake. There are those of us who want things to go back the way they were and going backwards is not <laughs> progress. And so that's what we're seeing and experiencing. And the notion that I've heard in some of these policies that these corporations, particularly those who are publicly traded stock in the stock market and that these CEOs and the C suites and board are doing things around diversity, equity, and inclusion. That are hurting their profits. These organizations, I've been a part of many conversations with CEOs, executives and boards. They are not doing anything that's going to hurt their profits. They understand profits better than many of the policymakers who are accusing them of, of not understanding. And so if they're doing this and they're finding, them and finding it to be profitable, they're the masters of making profits.
2: I think there's a couple of reasons. You ever see those like TikTok or Instagrams that are like, I was today years old when I realized you could do this way. and You're like, oh my God, I had no idea. You could, if you cut open a watermelon upside, like you just had no idea. So the idea of diverse thinking, it's a breeding ground for innovation and anything that's innovative typically is cutting edge to Sean's point um, is the next best thing is good for business, right? Because you always want to be ahead of the curve. And so I think We're in a very tech-driven society, and a lot of folks talk about AI and biometrics and this all this new tech coming up, but I think really where success ultimately goes back to are the people, right? Not to throw a whole monkey wrench into our conversation, but AI has been notoriously racist and, and riddled with biases, right? Whoever's creating the programs are creating these things inside the programming. And so when you do machine learning, they're learning what how you programmed it. So it all goes back down to the people, right? And when you're able to create a diverse workforce, you're better served for it because it will ultimately end up in profits and not having to rework things. I've done studies on, that I've seen folks use AI trained machines, and they're like, oh my God, we can't do it this way. We have to do it again. And so had it not been that whoever programmed that maybe were a bit more diverse in their thinking... The, it w- we would have done it once, right? And that's profit loss, having to redo things over and over. So being a bit more open, I think, will naturally help your bottom line. And that's what companies want. Maybe making it a bit more weighed into the fabric of your culture will help.
3: So many great points. And thank you for bringing up the AI thing. Because, first of all, AI keeps me up at night. Like, I'm waiting for the Terminator to be a real thing. Fi- like, I'm just waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger to
2: show up in front of my
3: house. I'm waiting for it. because he's I'm like, gonna be there. Too-
2: He's going to be there in three days, by the way. I'm telling you. I'm t- Girl, no, I've, the machines are, I know. And you can't even turn them off anymore, which is horrifying. And I blame my husband because...
3: Alexa is everywhere in my house. You have to even whisper her name because I am scared she will hear me. I am terrified of it. And it's such a great reflection. And by great, I mean horrible reflection because it shows us exactly the biases that we all have. No one designed this AI to be like, let's make it racist. No one was out there (laughs) trying to do this. Yet here it is because we are living in a society that promulgates all of this and keeps it alive. And that's why this work is so important. And I love that there is a business case for this. I love that when you look at the data, there is a business case. But if I'm being honest, I don't care if there was. I don't care if a business didn't get better about it at all. It's the right thing to do. It's really what equality and fairness is. But that's not the truth. The truth is it does benefit business and it benefits innovation and it benefits... Your reputation. It was a couple years ago. Do you remember that whole H&M scandal? They had a T-shirt with a black little boy that said "monking around" or something like that on the frickin' T-shirt, and everyone lost their minds. Rightly so, because I think you have to be really out of touch to not understand why people would be like, "Hey." Don't appreciate this. Like, why are you doing this? And I swear, if they had just one black person on the team who decided to put this promotion together, they could have had a lot better outcome for what happened to them. And it's just an example of just like, not there's no one person can have all the insights, no one person can have all of the understandings. So you need to build a team that will fill in the gaps, that make up for your own blind spots, that will move you forward because we can see the whole picture together. And I think that's really where businesses will thrive. If you realize that every single person, because their perspective is unique, can help you move the needle in whatever direction you needed to move, you will do better by your employees, by your company, by yourself. So I love all this. Thank you. Your- I remember that. I remember that ad.
4: And there have been so many times where I'm either on my phone or watching TV and I just turn to my husband and I say, like, who is on their PR team? <laughs> How did PR not stop this How did PR not take away their phone before they sent out that tweet? So we've I think we've established that diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, it's a part of evolution, right? It's a part of the evolving times when it comes to business and it's necessary. So how do we recession proof it?
1: Well, I think and we're starting to see for those organizations who are dealing with the prospects of recession, we're seeing layoffs against in various industries. We're seeing DEI initiatives being cut within certain organizations, and I think that there needs to be a realization that these efforts are for a long-term, sustainable growth and success of an organization. And Practically, most of the investment in this work, I think some of the recommendations are that organizations should invest invest 1% to 2% of their operating budget in DEI in order to really have chances of success. That cuts in DEI won't really address your expense problem or your financial issues. But in fact, that, you know, that long-term investment and sustained investment, which is modest at best, will lead greater returns. And that when you're looking at right-sizing your organization, because you need to be nimble based on the market, you really want to pay attention to DEI within your organization and make sure that you're not cutting in ways that adversely affect underrepresented groups within your organization, because now you're cutting off your future success. And a lot of times when when these layoffs occur, they're occurring, off, you know, they're occurring where they're disproportionately happening at lower levels within an organization, where you sometimes disproportionately have more people of color or women, et cetera, in those roles as well. And so HR teams and others really need to be very conscious about where they're making adjustments. So that they're not inadvertently curtailing their DEIB efforts. Um, so it really requires organizations to really truly be focused on the big picture, making adjustments where they need to make adjustments, but recognizing at the end of the day that cutting a diversity, equity, inclusion is not going to really impact your bottom line in the way that you think it's going to, but it's probably going to hurt your future success in ways that you don't want to hurt it and make you less competitive and not an ideal place to work?
2: My answer is not nearly as eloquent as Sean's because I don't know. I don't know. I see organizations cut. One of the first things that get cut are the DEI budgets. There's a ton of folks who are chief diversity officer but have no budget. So like, that's cool. I can't actually do anything, but I have a nice title. Not helpful. I think to Sean's last point though, likely the way to make it recession-proof is reverse engineering, right, where they cut it all. And then they're like, Oh, turns out that was really important. And people don't want to work here anymore, because we don't have enough diversity and people don't feel a sense of belonging, or they don't want to work here or add all the billions of things as to what makes a work culture function. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of these companies that have not fully leaned into this space, they have to learn the hard way, right? They cut these programs, they remove the funding, and then they're like, Oh, man, bad move. Because it's your point, from everybody's point, it's a business and I get it. They want to make money and maybe they're not seeing profits. And to my point earlier, it's a very slow little pace that we're going here, making end But it really does matter when it comes to dollars and cents. I mean, black and brown folks, we're consumers, right? We buy a ton of stuff all the time. And so if you start to remove these programs or you start to remove certain faces or voices, it's going to be felt through the community and it's going to come back. So I wish I had a better answer, but I do think part of what would make this recession proof is learning the hard way and having folks cut these programs, cut these, these initiatives, and then realize, oh, turns out more people were paying attention than we thought, and we probably should make this more important.
4: That's an honest and very real answer.
3: And I think realistic, yeah. because combining both your answers right now, Gen Z, they are not taking this. They are not taking this BS. Let me tell you, I have heard so much from the law schools, from the folks recruiting at law schools. These kids are not here to play. They're asking the hard questions. They're asking about retention. They want to see the percentages. And they don't even want to apply (laughs) to certain law firms because they do their homework. And guess what? Our society is changing in the next 10, 20, 30 years. People are going to look more like the people right here in this podcast at these firms. And so your clientele is changing. The people you are supposed to be selling yourself to are changing. Are you up for it? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. Are we ready to meet these new needs? this has been absolutely phenomenal. Please come back and join us again. Do you guys have any final thoughts, closing words? Where can people find you?
1: Well, listen, thank you for creating a forum where these discussions can happen, and that we have the opportunity to really shed some light on some really challenging, sensitive topics, but do so in a real and authentic way um, and create a space for those who are part of this struggle and fight, that they don't feel like they're alone, that they recognize that there are those of us who are working on the front lines, behind the scenes, and that there's very real intention and progress being made despite the obstacles. So thank you all for creating this platform and giving us the opportunity to be a part of it. You certainly can reach me at sean.miles at anchor.com. And we're in this to win it. We got the bumps and bruises and scars along the way. That brought us here and excited about what can be achieved and what can really be done to actually help make this a better environment for those of us who have been marginalized. We remain steadfast and committed to this work, and we are glad you all are as well. So, thank you.
2: So, same, right? You can find me at Patricia. Rodriguez at Ancura. We, Sean and I, have, I think, over the past year or year and a half, have perfected the art of facilitating DEI training. So, Reach out if you guys have any questions, like we said, allyship, open conversations, no judgment, not just for business, even just to know, right? And that's cool. Or Region Two's HMBA presidents, you can reach out there. And similar to Sean's point, I think at getting on a call with a bunch of people and not feeling incredibly tense as to what's going to come out of my mouth. Sometimes I need to like check myself out. Oh, I can't say that. I can't say this. I can't say that. I don't want to jam myself up. And so creating a space where people really can just say what they think, even if it's wrong, whatever that means, or if it's not acceptable that somebody will quickly check you and say, hey, like, that's just not we can't say things like that, I think is incredibly important because it gives us all space to learn and grow from each other. And nobody has it. And that's cool. That's how it's supposed to be. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Absolutely.
3: Thanks again.
4: Hey everybody, welcome back to Deep for the People. We are bringing you our favorite deep content to your screens. I'm going to kick us off. We are recording right now in June. I'm thinking all pride. So I'm bringing to you the powerful movie Milk. So this talks about LGBTQ plus icon, Harvey Milk, who was a trailblazer and made history as the first openly gay elected official in California. This movie goes through his trials and tribulations and how he fought for his community uh, when they were facing extreme prejudice. Harvey Milk is not someone that I learned about in school. We don't talk about Harvey Milk in school. This movie has passion and a movie that has direction, a movie that's powerful and shares a statement for deep, for equity, for belonging. That's probably why I love it. I love to get my history through the media. I'm not a big reader, but I do love documentaries and I do love biographical films. Sean Penn's performance is amazing in Milk. It's just one of my favorite movies. So I'm going to pass it over to my BB they,
5: Mary Ellen. Thank you, Angie. I am going to keep on my education kick from last time. And my, uh, one of my favorite resources is So You Want to Talk About Race by Oma Oluo. This book explores race by weaving together personal anecdotes with stats and history. I found it a really valuable tool in the beginning of my journey, and I found that it's especially helpful as a resource to revisit when you're inviting more people into the conversation. It makes it more digestible for audiences that don't have experience talking about race and talking about more sensitive subjects. This is a great starting point, and um, even just moving through her work, it helps you to build up your own knowledge and vocabulary. Tanya, what do you have for us today?
3: Okay, I'm gonna be a little self-promoting here. So forgive me, but we have some really big stuff going on and really important issues. Um, If you are anything like us, you are waiting at the edge of your seat to find out whether affirmative action in our country will still exist come July, right? We're waiting for that decision. And so OD has partnered with a few other folks and really thinking about how we can be proactive and thinking about what's next for us. And so we have um, created the series called Overruling Gruder. The first of the series has already taken place, but is available for you to view for free. And that uh, program actually looks at what might happen and how this decision might affect voluntary DEI in our various workplaces. The next session is coming up in July and we're gonna be looking at the decision uh, more closely Thinking about what we've learned from California, because they have had their affirmative action <laughs> overturn way before, and so we can learn and know what's, what to expect from them. And also thinking about what we can be doing right now and ongoing to the future and thinking about our pipeline and equity issues in the industry but it's not going to end there. What's great is we want this to be a commitment that we make now and forever. And so in September, we hope to have a hackathon where we can together collaborate to create a commitment to the pipeline. And if you remember from Ashley Bernal's episode, we talked about how important it is to invest in the pipeline early, often, always. And so it's just a way that we can really bring those recommendations to life and implement them because we know how important they are. And finally, in October, we're going to have the official signing of the commitment. If you want to get involved and we want you to be involved, please do reach out. We're creating a steering committee. We have some really interesting partners doing this work and we can help continue to educate everyone on the issues um, and yourself by coming to the panels and thinking about what we're doing. So that's what I have um, and we'll have links to everything in the show notes. We're really excited about this initiative and we know that this is the right way to really make a difference in the pipeline. Thanks for checking in on Deep for the People. If you have any content that you want to
4: share with us, make sure to email your submissions to buildingbelonging at nycbar.org. We would love to hear from you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.